Chapter Two, Part One of the Metamorphosis or Golden Ass. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Metamorphosis or Golden Ass by Apuleius, translated by Thomas Taylor. Chapter Two, Part One. Soon as, the night being dispersed, a new sun had made the day, emerging at the same time from sleep and my bed, being likewise anxious and above measure desirous of knowing what is rare and admirable, and recollecting that I was in the midst of Thessaly, where the genuine incantations of the magical art are reported to have originated by the unanimous consent of the whole earth, I diligently considered the several particulars of that narration of my excellent companion Aristomenes, which was occasioned by the proximity of this city, Hypata, to Thessaly, though I was otherwise in suspense from the desire of seeing something wonderful, and my diligence in the investigation of it. Nor was there anything in that city which when I beheld I could believe to be that which it really was but I was induced to think that everything was transmuted into another form by magical incantation, so that the stones which I met with were hardened into that shape from men. The birds which I heard singing had once been in the human form, but were now invested with feathers, and that this was also the case with the trees which were clothed with leaves, and surrounded the pomerium, or precinct of the town and with the fountains of water which devolved their streams from the liquefied bodies of men. I now likewise expected to find that the statues and images would walk, that the walls would speak, that sheep and that kind of cattle would prophesy, and that an oracle would suddenly be given from heaven itself and the orb of the sun. Being thus astonished, or rather stupefied with tormenting desire, finding no beginning or even trace of the objects of my wish, I rapidly investigated every particular. Nevertheless, while, like one intoxicated, I wander through the whole town from one gate to another, I suddenly, and without knowing where I was, came to the market in which delicate provisions were sold. There, as I was walking quickly, I overtook a certain woman who was surrounded with a great number of servants. Her earrings and her garments were adorned with gold, in the former of which it was wreathed, and was woven in the latter, which demonstrated her to be a woman of the first rank. By her side there stood a very old man, who, as soon as he saw me, said, This by Hercules is Lucius, and at the same time he kissed me. Immediately after, he whispered in the ear of the woman something which I did not hear. "'Will you not,' said he, "'approach and salute your parent?' "'I dare not,' I replied, "'salute a woman who is unknown to me.' And immediately blushing, I stood still with my head inclined to the other side. But she, fixing her eyes upon me, said, "'Behold the generous offspring of his most chaste mother, Salvia,' and the other parts of his body also admirably and exactly correspond to each other. For his stature is graceful, his slenderness is succulent, his ruddiness is moderate, his hair is yellow and without affectation, his eyes are azure but quick, and the sight of them is sharp and vigorous like that of an eagle. 
In short, he is everywhere comely, and his gait is decorous and artless. She also added, I have nursed you, O Lucius, with these my hands, and why should I not? For I not only participated with your mother of the same blood, but also of the same education, since we both originated from the lineage of Plutarch, have both of us sucked the milk of the same nurse, and have grown up together in the bonds of consanguinity. And there is no difference between us, except that which arises from dignity. For the marriage of your mother was illustrious, but mine was obscure. I am that Birina, whose name you may perhaps recollect, because it was frequently celebrated among those by whom you were educated. Betake yourself, therefore, confidently to our place of abode, or rather to your own proper house. To this I replied, my bashfulness having been dissipated by the time which she consumed in speaking. Far be it from me, O oh mother, that I should desert my host Milo, without any just cause of complaint. But I will sedulously take care to do whatever can be done by me without violating the rights of hospitality. And as often as I have occasion to come this way, I will call upon you. While we were engaged in this friendly altercation, consisting of refusal on my part and invitation on hers after we had proceeded a little farther we came to the house of birina the courtyard was most beautiful which supported statues of the goddess of victory raised on pillars which were quadripartite in the several angles the wings of the statues being stretched on each side without any motion of the rolling sphere and decorating the unstable step of the dewy feet made the images seem as if they were not fixed but were really flying behold too parian marble fashioned into a statue of diana was erected in the middle of the whole place this image was perfectly splendid for the garment of the goddess appeared as if it was blown back by the wind and she seemed as it were to run and to oppose those that were entering into the house it was also venerable on account of the majesty of the divinity which it represented. Dogs stood on each side of the goddess, and these likewise were fashioned of marble. The eyes of these seemed to threaten. Their ears were erect, their nostrils were open, and their mouths ferocious. And if any barking had been heard from the neighbourhood, you would have thought it proceeded from the stony throats of the dogs. That also in which the excellent statuary had given the most consummate specimen of the carver's art was this, that the dogs being erect and with their breasts advanced, the hind feet stood still, but the fore feet seemed to run. Behind the goddess a rock rose after the manner of a cavern covered with moss, grass, leaves and sprigs. In one place vines and in another shrubs flourishing from the marble. Within the rock the shadow of the goddess was resplendent from the brightness of the marble. In the extreme margin of the rock, apples and grapes hung exquisitely elaborated, which art, emulous of nature, represented similar to their exemplars. You would have thought that some of them might have been gathered for food, when autumn, the giver of wine, had breathed on them the colour of maturity. And if you beheld in a prone position the fountains, which, running under the feet of the goddess, vibrated in gentle waves, you would have thought that the clusters of grapes which hung from the vine, 
among other things in which they resembled reality, were also not destitute of mobility. In the midst also of the stony leaves was a carved Actaean, looking behind him with prying eyes, and now invested with the brutal form of a stag, and both in the marble and in the fountain he was seen to be expecting the coming of Diana to bathe. While attentively inspecting these works of art, I was exceedingly delighted. All that you see, said Birina, is yours, and immediately after she ordered with a low voice all the rest of her attendants to depart. And when all of them were gone, by this goddess, she said, my dearest Lucius, how exceedingly do I fear for you, and how much do I wish that you, who are, as it were, my son, may be well advised. Take care of yourself, but especially beware of the evil arts and nefarious blandishments of that Pamphili, the wife of Milo, whom you say is your host. She is one of the most renowned witches, and is believed to be mistress of every necromantic incantation, so that by branches of trees and stones and other frivolous things of the like kind, when she has breathed on them with magic words, she knows how to merge into the depths of Tartarus, and into ancient chaos, all this light of the starry world. For as soon as she has beheld any youth of a beautiful form, she is captivated by his elegance, and immediately turns upon him the sight both of her eyes and of her mind. She employs blandishments, she invades his spirit, she binds him with the eternal fetters of profound love. Then, despising those who are not sufficiently obedient to her, and who rank among the vulgar, she changes them in a moment of time into stones and cattle, and any kind of beast, but others she entirely destroys. I tremble for you on account of these things, and entreat you to beware of them, for she burns with an eternal love, and you, through your youth and your beauty, are fitted for her purpose. This was what Birena, who was very solicitous for my welfare, said to me. But I, who was otherwise inquisitive, as soon as I heard the name of the magic art, which I always wished to obtain the knowledge of, was so far from dreading the blandishments of Pamphili, that I voluntarily longed to become a proficient in that science, even though at a great price, and to precipitate myself entirely with an accelerated leap into the gulf of magic. Hence I hastily and insanely liberated myself from her hand, as from a certain bond, and having speedily said farewell, I flew to the house of Milo. And while, like one deprived of intellect, I thus accelerate my pace, I said, Now, O Lucius, be vigilant and attentive to yourself, for now you have the wished-for opportunity, and you may satiate your mind with admirable tales, which you have long desired to do. Away, then, with puerile fears. Strenuously encounter with the thing itself more nearly. Abstain from venereal connection with your hostess, and religiously reverence the conjugal bed of the worthy Milo. Attack, however, with all your might the maid-servant Fotis, for her form is elegant, her manners are facetious, and her conversation delightful. Yesterday evening, likewise, when you went to rest, she courteously brought you into the bedchamber, gently laid you in bed, very lovingly covered you, and having kissed your head, showed by her countenance how unwillingly she left you, 
and in the last place she frequently stood still, turning herself and looking behind her. Let us therefore make advances to Fotis as a thing good, felicitous, and fortunate, though it should not be salutary. While I thus determined with myself, I came to the gate of Milo, yet I did not find either Milo or his wife at home, but only my dear Fotis, who was preparing for her master and mistress a finely seasoned dish of minced meat, together with some broth. And I conjectured indeed by my smell that she was making very savoury food. She herself being neatly dressed in a linen garment, and girded a little higher than usual under her breasts, with a red and very splendid band, stirred round with her beautiful hands that dish of minced meat, and as she frequently stirred it, the gradually vibrating motion of her loins, and the gentle agitation of the flexible spine of her back, produced a graceful undulation. On perceiving this, I was fixed in astonishment, and stood wondering, and at length I said to her, How beautiful and pleasing, my Fotis, is the motion of your loins in stirring that dish of meat! What honeyed broth are you preparing? Happy and more surely blessed he, who is permitted by you to dip his finger in it! Then she, who was otherwise a pleasant and merrily loquacious girl, said, Depart, O miserable man, far from me! Depart from my fire, for if the flame of my love should scorch you, though but in a moderate degree, you will be profoundly burnt. Thus speaking, she looked at me and laughed. I did not, however, depart from her, till I had diligently explored the whole form of her body. But why do I speak of other things pertaining to her, since it has ever been my only care, sedulously to survey, in the first place, the head and the hair in public, and afterwards to enjoy them at home. In this decision I am confirmed by considering that this part of the body has a conspicuous position, and is the first thing that presents itself to our sight, and that the native splendour of the hair effects the same thing in the head, as the delightful colour of a beautiful garment in the other members of the body. Lastly, most women, in order to exhibit their native gracefulness and allurements, divest themselves of all their garments, and long to show their naked beauty, being conscious that they shall please more by the rosy redness of their skin than by the golden splendour of their robes. But, though it is a thing not lawful to speak of, and may there never be so dire an example of such a thing, if you deprive a woman of the most surpassing beauty of her hair, and strip her face of its native elegance, though she were sent from the heavens, produced from the sea, and nourished in the waves, though, I say, she were Venus herself, surrounded by all the graces, and attended by the whole family of loves, girded with her cestus, fragrant with cinnamon, and dropping balsam as she moves, yet if she were bald, she would not be able to please her own Vulcan. How beautiful is the hair, when it is of a pleasing colour, shines with a glittering light, is vividly refulgent when opposite to the rays of the sun, or is more mildly resplendent, and varies its appearance in a different gracefulness. At one time emitting a brightness like that of gold, it sinks into a slender shade of the colour of honey. At another, with a blackness like that of a crow, it emulates the azure flowers of the neck of doves, 
or now anointed with Arabian drops, separated by the slender tooth of a sharp comb, and tied behind the head, it presents itself to the eyes of the lover. It then, like a mirror, reflects a more pleasing image. How beautiful, when being thick, it is agglomerated with prolific abundance on the crown of the head, or, extended in a long series, flows down the back. Lastly, so great is the dignity of the hair of the head, that though a woman should be adorned with gold, rich garments, precious stones, and every other ornament, yet she would not seem to be decorated, unless her hair was gracefully divided. But in my photis, not studied, but neglected ornament, added elegance to her person. For her copious hairs, gradually falling pendulous on the hind part of her neck, and being afterwards distributed through the neck, and leisurely reclining on the flexuous border of the top of her garment, were, after being a little conglomerated in the extremity, fastened by a knot to the crown of her head. I could not, however, then any longer sustain the torment of such transcendent pleasure, but immediately gave her a most luscious kiss in that part where the hair ascended to the summit of her head. Then she turned herself toward me, and looking at me obliquely and with petulant eyes, So then, you novice, said she, you have taken a sweet, and at the same time a bitter draught. Take care, lest from the excessive sweetness of the honey you do not procure for yourself the lasting bitterness of gall. Why do you say so, my delight, I replied, since I am prepared, being renovated, to be roasted by that fire, even for one kiss? And having said this, and embraced her more closely, I began to kiss her more ardently. And now she, co-germinating with me into an equality of love, exhaling from her open mouth the odour of cinnamon, and ravishing me with the nectarious touch of her tongue, I said to her, I shall perish, or rather I am already a lost man, unless you will be propitious. To which she replied, having again kissed me, Be of good courage, for I am enslaved to you by mutual desire, nor shall our pleasure be deferred any longer, but as soon as it is night I will give myself to your embraces. It was scarcely, however, yet noon, when Berena sent to me hospitable gifts, videte a fat pig, five hens, and a caddis of wine, valuable for its age. Then I, having called Fotis, said, Behold, Bacchus, the exciter and armour-bearer of Venus, is come of his own accord, for the voyage of Venus alone requires such provision as this, videte, that through the whole of the wakeful night the lamp may abound with oil and the cup with wine. The rest of the day I passed in bathing, and afterwards in supping, for, being invited by the good Milo, I sat at his scanty table as much as possible out of the view of his wife, in consequence of recollecting the admonitions of Birena and, tremblingly, cast my eyes upon her, as if I was beholding the Lake Avernus. But as I continually looked at Fotis, who waited on us, my mind was refreshed by the view. As it was now evening, Pamphili, beholding the lamp, said, It will rain abundantly to-morrow. And on her husband asking her how she knew that to be the case, she answered, 
that this was predicted to her by the lamp. At this Milo, laughing, said, We nourish in this lamp a great sibyl, who sees from the candlestick as from a watch-tower all that is transacting in the heavens, and therefore surveys even the sun itself. To this I subjoined, These are the first specimens of this kind of prediction, nor ought it to seem wonderful that this flame, though small, and the work of human hands, should nevertheless have a recollection of that greater and celestial fire as of its parent, and through this should divinely presage and enunciate to us what the source of its existence is about to effect in the summit of the heavens. For with us at Corinth a certain Chaldean stranger now disturbs the whole city with his admirable predictions, and divulges to the common people the arcana of fate for the sake of gain. Thus, for instance, he would tell the day on which the nuptial knot would be tied, or the foundations of walls would be established so as to remain for ever, and what day would be auspicious to the merchant, or an anniversary to the traveller, or adapted to navigation. Lastly, to me inquiring of him what would be the result of this my journey, he answered, that it would be attended with many very admirable and different events, for, he said, that at one time I should obtain a sufficiently flourishing renown, and that at another I should write a great history and an incredible fable, and compose books. Milo, laughing on hearing this, says, Of what stature was this Chaldean, and what was his name? I replied, He was a tall man, and of a dark complexion, and his name was Diophanes. It is the same person, said Milo, and no other, who, having similarly predicted many things to many in this city, and gained through it no inconsiderable wealth, or rather a great sum of money, unhappily experienced an inauspicious, or that I may speak more truly, a cruel fortune. For on a certain day, when being surrounded with a great crowd, he distributed destiny to all around him, a merchant, whose name was Cerdo, came to him desiring to know what day would be the fittest to take a journey. But when Diophanes had selected and pointed out to him the proper day, and Cerdo, having opened his purse and taken out the money contained in it, had counted a hundred pence, which he intended to give him as the reward of his predictions, behold, a certain youth of noble family, coming behind him and taking hold of his garment, embraced and kissed him most cordially. But Diophanes, having in his turn also kissed the youth, and at the same time desired him to sit near him, was stupefied, as it were, by the unexpected sight of his friend, and forgetting what had just then occurred, said to him, How long is it, my much-wished-for friend, since you came into these parts? To this the other answered, I came about the beginning of the evening. But do you also, brother, inform me in your turn how it happened that you sailed so quickly from the island of Euboea to this city, and have passed over both sea and land? In answer to this, Diophanes, that excellent Chaldean, being deprived of intellect, and not yet himself, said, May our enemies and all those who are hostile to us meet with the like cruel and Ulyssian peregrination, for the ship itself in which we sailed, being injured by various storms, and having lost both the mast and the rudder, could not be impelled to the opposite shore, but was merged in the gulf. 
and we, having lost all our property, were scarcely able to save ourselves. Whatever we could scrape together, either from the pity of strangers or the benevolence of our friends, was all taken from us by a band of robbers, and my brother, whose name was Arisuatus, being the only one that resisted their violence, was unhappily slain before my eyes. While Diophanes was sorrowfully relating these particulars, the merchant Cerdo, taking up the money which he had designed to pay for the prediction, immediately ran away. Then, however, Diophanes, being at length roused from his stupor, perceived the injury which he had sustained through his imprudence, especially when he saw that all of us who surrounded him burst into loud laughter. But I wish, Lucius, that the Chaldean may have predicted what is true to you alone among all of them, and that you may be happy and make a prosperous journey. During this prolix narration of Milo, I silently lamented, and was not a little angry with myself, that having voluntarily introduced a series of unseasonable tales, I had lost a good part of the night, and the most delightful fruit of it. At length, therefore, I boldly said to Milo, Let Diophanes bear his destiny, and again expose to the perils both of land and sea the money which he may obtain by his predictions. But suffer me, who am still weary from the toil of yesterday, to betake myself quickly to rest. Having said this, I rose up and went to my bedchamber, and there I found a most elegant arrangement of delicacies for the bed of the less male servants was laid on the floor, at a considerable distance from the door, in order, I suppose, that they might not be a witness of the nocturnal murmurs. A small table stood by my bed, sufficiently laden with the rich remains of the whole supper, and two cups already half full of water, only waiting for the admixture of wine. Near these also was a stone bottle, the orifice of which gradually dilated, and from which the wine could easily be drawn. I was scarcely laid down when, behold, my Fotis, her mistress having now retired to rest, approached, scattering roses upon the bed, some of which also she carried in her swelling bosom. Having likewise closely kissed me, tied a garland round my head, and strewed upon me flowers, she seized a cup, and pouring warm water into it, extended it to me, that I might drink. But before I had drunk the whole, she gently took it from me, and gradually diminishing with her lips what was left, and at the same time fixing her eyes on me, she sweetly sipped it, a second and a third time also, and frequently we pledged each other. End of chapter 2, part 1